I'm going to call out the elephant in the room. It's like people don't like to sit near each other. Just, just putting that out there. Just putting that out there. <laughs> oh, it's cute. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to jump into this series, but I, or this message, but I have a quick disclaimer for the sermon. We usually take a few corresponding verses and dive deep into them. That's usually what we do. We'll read just a few verses and then jump in, and I love to do this. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to take some longer passages and read them as narratives in particular to support the main idea of the one and a half verses that we're really going to cover. One reason for that is as a community, when we study scripture, when we interpret it, okay, here's, here's a theological seminary word, you ready? Our hermeneutics, which means to interpret, when we interpret scripture, we want to make sure that we're paying attention to the what and the who that wrote down the things that they said to find out the why. And we want to interpret scripture with the understanding that the filter is Jesus, God's only son. From, from uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's all about him. I love that the Bible is 66 books written over 1,500 years on three different continents, translated from three different languages through 40 different human authors being inspired and led by the Holy Spirit to tell one story, that we need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So today, as we come to the scripture, I hope that we'd interpret it with the lens that we don't just need to uh, read more, but we need to understand more of who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. So when you study scripture, I'll give you a real practical example. When you're studying scripture, you look at it and you go, how does this point me to Jesus? As you read any passage in any part of God's word. So we're continuing the series called Making the Main Thing the Main Thing, because in the church of Jesus Christ, to be totally honest, for years, it's really easy to fall into some default setting that doesn't make it about Jesus. It doesn't make it about the gospel. It doesn't make it about the point of what Christianity really is. And the first week, we talked about gospelizing Christians. It's a word I trademarked. I'm just kidding. But this word idea of giving the gospel away, we gospelize Christians and how important it is to have spiritual conversations with one another because how would we possibly have some with people outside of the faith if we can't talk with one another? And that week and also last week, we talked about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished on our behalf is the filter for why we have our being. And last week, we talked about being intentional and relational in our gospel sharing. We taught a lot about what evangelism, proclaiming, is and what it isn't. And evangelism is not a requirement. It's a natural response to redemption. It's not a requirement, it's a natural response to redemption. And not only that, evangelism is not about your effectiveness, it's about your obedience to be willing to try. It's not about you trying to convert someone, it's about you being willing to engage with what God says and to actually obey him by telling others about him. So today we're going to continue, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this passage takes us back to the foundation of Christianity. And so 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, here we go. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, I want to bring back to your attention the gospel that I preached to you, in which you've received, in which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Paul's admonishment to the church in Corinth is to help them understand the message of the gospel and that it has an effect on people that have received it, it is noticeable, not just an acknowledgement that it's possible, 
but that we have actually been affected by the gospel. If a building falls on you, you're going to look different. And how much more different should we look if the gospel, God coming with skin, living among us, has affected us by being king of our lives? And because of this, he's warning the church in Corinth that if they haven't been affected, they've probably believed in vain. This sounds like some bad news, and unfortunately, we're going to talk a little bit about some bad news to accentuate how great the good news is. So otherwise, you have believed in vain. One of my favorite quotes of all time, and we kind of kid that we always have to have a quote from some dead person, okay? So we're going to have a quote from a dead person from the 4th and 5th century, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce his name. He was a great preacher and theologian, and he said this, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. And here's the thing. The way we hear this kind of shows where we're at. See, this quote gives license to those who have believed in vain. Oh, I can do whatever I want. Well, then I'll just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. But what he is saying is the fact that it gives liberation to those who are truly found complete in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just that you would sin less but the gospel is so you could love God more fully, which in turn takes the motivation of sin, the motivation to do things that we wanted to do in our past life, and it squelches that. Our actions are reactions to our beliefs. That's what our actions are. The way we live is a reaction to what we truly believe. So what we believe dictates how we behave. And the way we live is a direct result of our understanding and passion for the gospel of Jesus. Verse 3. We're going to be here a while, just so you know. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Last week, we covered the fact that what was received was then passed on. It was a natural response to tell others what you had experienced, what had benefited you, what had changed you. If you guys go to, an, to a good restaurant, you're telling somebody, aren't you? There's an entire, uh, entire app that specifically encourages us to do this, but unfortunately we tend to use it for the negative, don't we? It's called Yelp. In Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he gives his followers a commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, and, and I need some participation in this verse because there's some, some good stuff in it. But you will receive power. Say power. power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Jesus said. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives his followers some orders that are, I believe are as prudent today to those of us who have trusted Jesus as they were on the day that he gave them to his disciples. Jesus tells his followers that they are witnesses. So here's my question. What does a witness do? Testify, Testify right? Like that's what a witness does. You're like, why did you say it like that? Because it's fun. <laughs> you testify. If you are in a courtroom and you are a witness, you are going to be asked to testify, to testify to what you have seen, to testify to what you've experienced, and to testify what you know to be true. That's what it means as we trust Jesus and we tell others about who he is. 
and we share our testimony. That's what it is to testify. I remember speaking at a youth group, oh, I don't know, like a decade ago, and I'm speaking at this youth group, and I'm sharing my testimony. I'm sharing my story, and I kid you not, as I walked off the stage, I got this impression. It almost felt like a finger to my chest. I felt as if God had said, good story, bro. What did that have to do with me? And so when we testify, we don't testify to our goodness. We don't testify to how good we are. We testify to the fact that God has changed us. We testify to what we've seen, what we've experienced, and what we know to be true. So we pass on what we've received. And we do it through our own testimony of the effect that the gospel's had on us. So what Paul had received directly from the Lord, he then passes on. Verse 3, again, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, check it in bold, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. One of my favorite things about this passage is uh, verses 3 and 4 are considered chronologically the message that started the New Testament, that Jesus died in our place, and then he was buried, and then he rose again. This was the first message that was preached from the beginning. So when Paul says, according to the scriptures, guess what? He's not talking about the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And one of the largest points I want us to make as a community often is that we know that the Old Testament is not done away with. The Old Testament has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a foreshadowing. It is a prelude, a prelude, a prequel of the New Testament. One way that is seen in the Old Testament is that it speaks often of the death of the suffering servant and what the suffering servant was going to come and do. Isaiah chapter 53, we've studied this passage before, verses 5 through 10. Hear this as I read it. Think about this testimony of what happens. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and the Lord has laid up on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence." nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, hallelujah, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know what's interesting about this passage? It sounds like it's an eyewitness report. It sounds like it's an eyewitness testimony to Jesus hanging on the cross, but this was written 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary. The Old Testament's not done away with. It's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and the suffering servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was cut off from the land of the living, but his days, hallelujah, will be prolonged. Christ's sacrifice was the remedy for our sin. Daniel 9 and Psalm 22 also speak of the future suffering of the Lord like it's 
eyewitness accounts of what's to happen. And this foundation to our faith was first teased in the Hebrew Scriptures to let us know that the foreshadowing of the coming king who would come, he would suffer and he would take, the king would take the penalty for his subjects' wrongdoing. By taking on the curse of our sin, Jesus redeems us from it if we've trusted him. And our sin is something that not only do people want to hush, but they don't really want to think about, right? You guys are like, wait, I'm coming to church. I don't want to hear bad news. I want to hear good news. Yeah, but we got to get to the bad news first so you understand how truly amazing the good news is. A lot of us don't want to admit the effect that sin has on this world. And if you turn on the news, you know this, this world is tore up. You know that things are off. You know that things are being seen through cracked lenses because people are off. And we often want to buy into the lie that people are ultimately good. Isn't that what we generally want to think? And the problem with that is the direct contradiction of what the Bible teaches. So we're going to look at what Paul writes to the church in Rome. And he writes in Romans chapter 8, and he writes just this narrative, if you will, this explanation of what happens to those that are living by the flesh rather than the spirit. For what the law, Romans 8, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous, the right standing requirement of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit, capital S, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, and the mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's important. Those who are in the realm of the flesh can not please God. I don't know how much clearer that can be. See, sin is the real problem. Because sin, our sin condition, our sin nature, our heart condition without the Holy Spirit inside of us is bad, bad news for those of us who are yet to know God through his Son. But the mind, specifically governed by the flesh, it's hostile to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's a passage we've talked about a lot, we've taught it a lot. The word confirms this idea that we all at one point were and are enemies of God, deserving of wrath. But in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, in ESV, it says one of the most encouraging two words in all of Scripture. It says, but God. Usually it's some pretty good news after that. But God intervened. And the beauty is that once you embrace the bad news, once you embrace that there is a spiritual problem, once you embrace that you have a spiritual deficit, you then can be open to the solution. And hear me, the solution does not come in a bottle. It does not come in a pill. It doesn't come in monetary gain or property. The solution is in a person, an event, and a message that God entered into the fray to redeem those who had strayed and turned. Such good news. The past two weeks, I've had some amazing conversations with people within this community, in particular, about the gospel. 
these conversations, we've gone back and forth, we've been discussing. And a few weeks back, a person in our community was struggling with the realism of the gospel because if you listen to just the message of the gospel, that we sinned and God provided a payment in the death of his own son, it seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Especially out of context. It seems crazy. It sounds too good to be true. And it is too good. But it's absolutely true. That Jesus would engage, that God would engage, that he would take on skin and live among us. So here's the question that's usually asked, probably asked even by some of us in this room today. What about the really bad people? Anyone ever struggle with this? Okay. What about the really bad people? And what I love about that question is, a lot of times we assume that's not us, right? Here's how we ask it. What if Hitler believed, right? Like that's, we go to the absolute extreme that we know of. What if Hitler believed? What if Hitler repented after all of the crimes that he committed? Is God's grace big enough for him? It is. Some of us hate that because he's so undeserving. But what we don't understand is spiritually, we're undeserving too. Spiritually, we bring nothing to the table. And here's the thing. I don't think Hitler had a heart change. I think he's burning in hell. That's my assumption. Call me a judge. I just think that that's what happened. But the thing is that God's grace is big enough for even the worst. That's how big the cross is. That no matter how bad you've been, God can redeem you. Because no one brings anything good to God. No one brings anything that's enough. Well, I memorized this thing in Greek. It doesn't matter. What matters is, do you know him? What matters is that God doesn't forgive good people because if he forgave good people, he wouldn't forgive anyone because the word says that none of us are good, not even one. But what we don't realize is how bad we actually are spiritually in comparison to a holy and perfect God. No matter how much worse someone like Hitler is than us, we are infinitely worse when we compare ourselves to God. So is God's grace big, wide, and deep enough for someone who is terrible? Yes, which means he can handle how bad we are. Is this thing on? And God often will make the point to often save the worst but I don't want you to miss this. It's not your actions that exclude you from the kingdom. It's your unwillingness to admit, confess, and turn from your belief that you're good enough. That's good. I'll, I'll, I'll preach back to the preacher. That's good. It is not your actions that exclude you from the kingdom. It is your unwillingness to admit, confess, and turn from your belief that you are good enough. So we shouldn't compare ourselves to Hitler, but if we're gonna compare ourselves to anyone, we ought to compare ourselves to Jesus, and when we realize how bad we are, we ought to repent and say we're with him. So that's some bad news. And grasping how bad we are gives fervor to how good God is to extend us grace in Jesus Christ. The bad news accentuates how great the good news is. The bad news accentuates how great the good news is and we must also take into account the infinite contrast between us and God. See, he is perfect. He is pure. He is without blemish. My God is without mistake. 
You and I can't say the same, that we are without mistake. In Psalm 51, verse 15, the psalmist, David, says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We enter into this world without a chance, but God. Do you hear me? But God. Unless God intervenes, we are without hope, and he does intervene. He does do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Not his own sins, but ours. And through his death, we find life. There's this term that's so important to me, guys. It's a term that gets me excited when I think about it. It's the term, the great exchange. The great exchange. That God got what we deserved, and we get what he deserves. That's what the great exchange is. He was without sin, and yet he incurred the punishment for our sin, for us. He exchanged his life for ours, and this incredible reality embedded in the gospel should not only be something that we share with others, but something that you and I meditate on. Have you thought about this week the fact that Christ died in your place? Has that been on your mind? Has the severity of the cross and the punishment that Jesus incurred even crossed your mind this week that you and I were the ones that put him there? He exchanged his life for ours. And the good news of other religions, the good news of other faiths and religions is that maybe you can work your way to God. Maybe you can work your way to a higher power But here's the thing about all those religions, you'll never know if you did enough. In the gospel, you understand that God didn't expect you to work your way to him, but he came to us. In the incarnation, God taking on flesh and living among us, he was tempted like us, but unlike us, he never once sinned, and because of God's love for his creation, he traded places with us by dying in our place. So some of you today, as a friend, as a brother in the faith, and as the pastor of this church, I want to let you know that as a Christian, I never, ever, and you never, ever have to be insecure or unsure of your place in the kingdom, not because you are good, but because you are God's. It is only because of what God does that makes you complete in him. And God takes what is truly a heart condition of sin, and when we have come to Christ, he replaces it with a heart condition of repentance. I have four kids, uh, three girls, then a boy. Don't do it. And I have these kids, and I love them, and one of the things that I've noticed about my middle daughter for most of her life, my middle daughter Lorelai, is she has this heart of repentance. See, the other kids, they'll fight me on stuff, and there's pride involved. But with Lorelai, if she does something to disappoint, she is quick to apologize. And when she came to me and said, I want to be baptized, I kind of wanted to talk her out of it because I wasn't sure she was ready. And so I said, Lorelai, why do you want to be baptized? And she said, I love God and I want to show him. How do you argue with that? But what I've noticed about that young girl is that when she fails and she realizes she's failed, she gets quicker and quicker to apologize. That's what maturity looks like. The more that we realize that we fail, the quicker we ought to be to actually turn from it and confess to our God and confess to other people that we trust so it has no power over us. So what does this all mean? 
means that when we come to Christ, he gives us this heart of repentance, and it means that because of this, because of this great message of the great exchange, we must share this with others, not because we have to, but when you find a great restaurant, you can't not tell others about it. Last week, I brought my wife up here, Erin, and I shared, you know, I introduced all of you to her. Why? Because it's really easy for me to talk about someone I love. It's really easy for me to introduce you to someone who God's used to change me. It's really easy for me to want you to know the, the person I, I tricked into marrying me, right? But how much more infinitely ought we be to tell others about Jesus, who's completely changed us from the inside out if we've trusted him? So we want to relate the gospel. If we had the cure for cancer, wouldn't we want to share it with somebody? We have the antidote to sin. We have the cure for death in the resurrected Christ. And we want to relate this gospel in a way that people can understand. See, our message is one of forgiveness. And here's what I know about God's people. When you're forgiven, you can forgive. When you've received grace, you can give grace. But you know who can't? Someone who hasn't truly received it. So forgiveness of sins is what a big part of this message is. And we understand we were forgiven such a large debt that none of us could ever pay back on our own. We inherently want to compare. We want to hold grudges. We want others to pay us back for any wrongdoings against us. There's a story talking about a couple that's been married 15 years. It's not my wife and I, even though that's us. And they've been married 15 years, and they began to have more than usual disagreements. They wanted to make sure that their marriage would work, and they agreed on an idea that the wife had. For one month, they planned to drop a slip of paper in what was known as a fault box. Is anyone starting to see how this might go awry? And this box would provide a place to let the other one vent their daily irritations as opposed to starting a fight every single day the other person bothered them. The wife was diligent in her efforts, it says. And so every time her husband frustrated her, she grabbed a slip of paper, probably staring at him the whole time, and wrote, leaving the jelly top off the jar. Drop. Wet towels on the shower floor. Drop. Dirty socks not in the hamper. Drop on and on until the end of the month. After dinner at the end of the month, they exchanged boxes. And the husband started to look at all the different things that he had done to irritate his wife. And he meditated on them and thought about them. And then the wife opened her box and began reading. And every sheet of paper read the same. The message on each slip of paper was, I love you. Every time we sin against God, church, if we've received grace in Christ Jesus because of the gift he's given us, if we've received forgiveness for our sins, we do not need to look at the laundry list of violations we have done against God, but we can see every one of them as stamped, I love you, every time. Because Christ's sacrifice was not because you earned it, not because he needed you in order to help heaven run correctly, or because you bring anything to the table. At the heart of the gospel is that God loves you. Do you grasp that? God, the infinite creator, the perfect one, loves you. 
you get to love him back by obeying what he says. And the thing is, you're playing with house money. Every time you fail, he forgives if you're included in Christ. Not because you're good for it, but because he is. So Paul the Apostle was the one who would relate this beautiful message of two people that he was, he was seeing throughout the book of Acts, and he would explain the gospel of grace to those around him. And no matter the circumstance or the situation, as he was led by the Holy Spirit, he explained the truth of the gospel while taking into account his hearers and their understanding. So turn with me, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to read a narrative. We're going to read an example of Paul preaching in Athens, Greece, as he's waiting for a few of the other disciples. And as we read this story, I hope that you notice the various ways that Paul relates the gospel to his audience. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. It'll be up here as well. Verse 16 is where we'll start. While Paul, the apostle, who was killing Christians and met Jesus alive after he died, switched teams, started preaching the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, or uh, throughout the book of Acts, Asia Minor, Paul was waiting for the other disciples in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Huh, good thing we don't have that anymore, right? So he reasoned in the synagogue, or the Jewish church gathering, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace at Pete's, and at Starbucks, and at Google, and day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, or Areopagus, I, I say Areopagus, and this, this meeting is essentially like a city council meeting, if you will, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does this sound familiar at all? Verse 22, then Paul stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. This would sound like a diss coming from me, but what he's specifically saying is you look very pious. You look very like you want to do the right thing before God. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I love this because they have all these different gods uh, where they created these statues. And they were like, just in case we forget one, we don't want to offend him. So we'll just make one that says to the unknown God. And then we can say, no, 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 it was that one. And he found this inscription to an unknown God. So what you are ignorant of, the very thing you worship, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Huh. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he created all the nation or he made all the nations 
that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. You know what that tells me? That if you're in a certain job or you're at a certain school or you have certain neighbors, that doesn't surprise God. God did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. This is one of the most encouraging verses that I go back to a lot because I know I run from God, but you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't run from me. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets, like Kanye, have said, we are his offspring. Kanye West, never mind, that's not in the text, I'm just giving you an example. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to go to church once a week. Just making sure you're paying attention. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change direction. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Look at their response. When they heard about this, the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I would assume our context would be, right? Like, that would be the sneer. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Oh, that gives me some hope. Because some people won't listen to it. Some people don't care. But some people will want to hear. Why? Because God does remove the veil for some. This passage is such an important lesson for those of us who have been redeemed by the message of Jesus Christ that we ought to pay attention to the people who we share good news with. A lot of us have probably at one point heard a canned message of the gospel where you just kind of say these specific words. There's no passion behind them. There's no real belief in them. You just think you ought to say these words. Words And I'm not against Romans Road. I'm not against uh, sinner's prayer. I'm just saying that that's not what God expects of us. What God expects of us is to testify. What God expects of us is to point people to Jesus. And we ought to pay attention to those that we're sharing our faith with to figure out what they know, what they understand. We don't need to share like robots. God wants to take our perspective. He wants to take our circumstances. He wants to take our understanding of language and our relationships and utilize them for the glory of his name by pointing those people around us towards Christ. I was at a party last night, and uh, my buddy who uh, you guys know, who got baptized a few weeks ago, Jason, he was, he was having a, a party because him and his wife are going to have a baby, mostly his wife, not mostly him. And... We were there, and he had a bunch of friends from high school and from college at the, at the party, and it was great. And he walks up to me, and he goes, hey, would you say grace for the food? And I was like, grace? No, I didn't do that. I, I said, yes, but can you please not introduce me as your pastor? And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. And so it was so funny. He's like, we're all sitting down. There's hot dogs, hamburgers, and he's like, uh, Tim's going to say grace because he's my, he says it better than I do. <laughs> all right. 
So I, I prayed for the meal, and it was really good, and then I started to have conversations with people. And here's what I know. As soon as people find out I'm a pastor, their language changes. I'm just telling you that. You, might, you probably already do that with me. Like, you were like, blah, 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 and then I walk up, and you're like, oh, and you just change the words that you use. I did not want that, all right? And so what was so cool was no one knew. They heard me pray for it, but they were like, oh, he sounds like he, he's, like, religious, right? And I walked up to this couple, and we started to talk. I don't think you're here. Okay, because uh, I'm talking about you. Um, but when they found out I was a pastor, they were so excited. <gasps> we're believers too, praise God. Yeah, like, even their language changed. It was awesome. And then I was like, well, we baptized Jason two weeks ago. And they're like, what? And they ran over to Jason. They're like, brother. Anyway, <laughs> Christians are weird. Anyway, I don't know why I shared that other than I like that story. The goal is not to share a canned message. The goal is to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And just like as I introduced my wife to all y'all, I didn't use a canned message to say, this is Aaron, if you do that. No, I, I introduced you to her, and we ought to introduce people to Jesus. So with that, I'm going to give you a canned message. <laughs> Not exactly. I'm going to give you this acronym that uh, I used to use a lot, and honestly, I don't use it anymore, but man, it gives just a, a better version of trying to stay on focus when we're talking about the gospel. But I'm going to tell you this right now, it's not complete. It's not complete. We're going to notice things that aren't in it. So I'm going to read it to you. You're going to try to take notes really fast, and you don't have to because I have a card. All right? I'm just putting that out there. I didn't tell first service that. I'll be nice to you all. So here's the acronym. It's gospel. First, G, God created us to be with him. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden with him. They were in direct relationship. God created us to be with him. Oh, our sins separate us from God. Not God's sin, he doesn't sin, he's perfect, not someone else's sin. Our sin separates us from God. S, sins cannot be removed by good deeds. should say by. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. It's not what we do to make up for the bad that we've done. P, paying the price for our sin, Jesus died and rose again. It's what Christ has done that makes us holy before God. E, everyone who trusts in Christ alone receives eternal life. Not trust in, in Jesus and then trust in some other religions just to cover all your bases. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone receives eternal life. L, life with Jesus, eternal life, starts now and lasts forever. I don't, as I give you guys these cards, I don't recommend that you give them to people like tracks. I think you should put this in front of you during the week. I think you should think about this gospel. I think you should think about the difference that God has made. But what did it not include? I'll give you some things. It didn't include the incarnation of Christ, that God clothed himself with skin. It didn't include the ascension, that Jesus ascended back to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. It didn't include the return of Christ, the fact that he's coming back one day, y'all. It didn't include the kingdom of God and how we're adopted into it, but this is an example of something that we ought to at least start with and tell others about what Christ has done for us. So when we share the gospel, do not be afraid to ask for a response. Do not be afraid to ask for a response. Some of, one of my favorite questions, if I'm sharing the gospel with someone, one of my favorite questions to ask them is, what's stopping you from following Jesus? What's stopping you from following Jesus? I don't walk up to random people, excuse me, what's stopping you from, no, no, no. 
First, I share the gospel with them. I share the good news with them. If it's part of this, you know, gospel acronym, or if it's Christ did for me what I could not do for myself, or if it's testifying to the difference God has made in me. But when we share, we shouldn't be afraid to ask for a response. And here's the answer that I pretty much always get. There's always two answers to why people don't follow Jesus. You ready? Ignorance or pride? Ignorance or pride? Either they don't know the irresistible goodness of our God, or they're too prideful and they think that they're good enough on their own. My father, my dad, I believe, died without the Lord. And the most substantial gospel conversation we ever had was a few months before he passed. We were talking, and we talked about the history of Christianity. We talked about the historical facts of Jesus' death on the cross and the historical, uh, the historical facts of his supposed resurrection. We talked about the arguments. And as I, for him, unfortunately, had an answer for every question he had, he eventually put his hand out and he said, Tim, I don't want to believe. It's not that people can't believe the gospel. It's not that they can't believe in grace. It's not that they can't understand or believe the great exchange or in the resurrected Christ. It's not that they can. It's ultimately because they don't want to. So let's remove the excuse of ignorance, church. And let's point them to the fact and the truth that we have a resurrected king who is alive that can be known now. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I'm going to give you a plithy state, plithy, 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 plithy statement. Christ's death paid our debt. His resurrection is our receipt. And we are going to unpack this verse in much greater detail next week as we walk through the evidence and the answers to many of the objections to Christianity. But let me make sure that you and I understand that without the resurrection, we have no hope. If our God is dead, we have no hope. But with the resurrection, we have infinite hope because an infinite God loves us in spite of us. And when I say love, I just got to put this out there, I don't mean condones our sin. It's not what I mean by love. Oh, it's okay, live however you want. That's not what God's love is. It's not to have us stay where we are. But God has put others' needs before his own by giving up the ultimate sacrifice of allowing his perfect and sinless son to die in our place so that we could have life. A story is told about a pastor back east who had an adopted child. And it starts off this way, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could ever be so difficult. <laughs> Or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's grace. Our middle daughter had previously been adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption. And we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed to Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Wow. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her the presence of being on this trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, 
She had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take my whole family to Disney World the next time we could make it to Florida, and I thought I personally had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was the prospect of visiting this dream world and what it would produce such a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request, request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were caref carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her transgressions multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward word spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed at that several times before. She was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes, wide-eyed, and tears streaming down her face. So I then asked, are you part of this family? She nodded, yes. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. And honestly, I'd like to say that her behaviors behavior got better at that moment, but it didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel, every rest stop, all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World, and on the day that we had promised, we got there, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines, which my wife loves, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going back someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhaustive, exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy. And I held her close. And after a month-long facade of rebellion had faded, as I was holding her towards bedtime, I asked her, how was your first day at Disney World? Closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly, and she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. The writer of the story, Timothy Paul Jones, says it this way, Grace is not a favor that can be achieved by being good. It's the gift you receive by being God's. So the goal is not to get people to agree or acknowledge some canned message, but to introduce people to Jesus with the understanding that he doesn't just take parts of us, but he wants to take all of us, the good, the bad, it doesn't matter because he makes us his. 
Let me leave you with this explanation of the gospel we want to keep putting in front of us. The gospel is everything Christ taught, everything he is, everything he did and accomplished historically and theologically. We want to introduce people to Jesus through the good news of the gospel that Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves.